Good morning. Am I on? Yes. Ooh. <laughs> that was scary. <laughs> wow. Um, I wasn't expecting that. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you, Sarah and the worship guys. And I was just sitting down there thinking, we're so blessed in this church to have such amazing musicians. I cannot play a single note, um, but I'm so blessed by you guys every week. So thank you very much for all the musicians who rock up and do your stuff. School. We've all been there, at least I hope you were. If not, where were you? Um, they're allegedly, allegedly the best days of your, your life. I'm not entirely convinced about that, but that's what they tell you. But what makes your school days good, bad, happy or sad? There's a song in there somewhere. Um, in my hazy recollection, something to do with the teachers. When my darling daughters arrive home from school at night, the front door at four o'clock explodes open. They arrive down the hall, school bags strewn, coats flying behind them, lunch boxes hurled at me. I, in an attempt striving to be an entirely adequate parent, ask them, how's your day gone, dear? And often it's what's happened with a teacher that determines the outcome of their day. Whether it's good, because they've been praised, or they've done something fun in lessons, or whether it's bad, because the teacher has caused a grievous offence by action or proceeding. What was school like for you? How was it for you? Well, when I was thinking back about this, you know what, it wasn't actually the horrible, the intolerant, the nasty teachers I remembered. I remembered the geography teacher because he used to throw the stapler down the classroom, which was a bit lively. But um, it wasn't particularly those that I remembered. No, it was the good ones, the ones who had a positive effect on my life, the ones who went above and beyond in an attempt to educate me. There was Mr. Flynn. Now, he taught me woodwork. He was good, yeah. But he also taught me how to design stuff. In his after-school after clubs, he taught me to design stuff, to the love of making things. There was Mr. Fisher. He was very scary, but he taught me metalwork. But he was great because he allowed me to go in, especially at lunchtimes, and he taught me how to use the lathe, the milling machine, all the stuff that we weren't ordinarily allowed to use. There was Mr. Parkinson who taught... I'll change that. Mr. Parkinson dragged me through physics. Um, but he did more than that. He helped me to gain confidence in me and actually enjoy one of the sciences. But my favorite teacher, she was my first teacher, Mrs. Smith. Can you spot me? 1979. There I, I know, I know. Still cute. <laughs> <laughs> That was Mrs. Smith. Now, I have to confess, I was not perhaps the child in her class who showed the most academic potential at that point. I didn't write very well. In fact, I wrote completely in mirror, um, which was quite an achievement. I can't do it again. I can't spell, and I, still, I couldn't spell, and I really still can't spell. Um, and I wasn't that great with numbers either. I didn't have much going for me, but Mrs. Smith persevered, persevered, and she didn't let all those things stand against me. She worked with me. She didn't belittle, put me down, and in the end, I produced some vaguely coherent work, which was quite good. 
I did go back and see her once I got my degree. I went to see her again. She was very proud. Aww. Anyway, <laughs> the position of a teacher is one that demands respect. Well, I think it does anyway, far more so than teachers get at the moment, in my humble opinion. Um, and, but throughout history, teachers have always had that respect. They've commanded attention. And this morning, we're going to look at the ultimate teacher, the definitive theological educator, tutor to the few and mentor to the masses. We're looking at Jesus. Do you know him as a teacher? This passage, although we know it really, really, really well, is actually a battle of the teachers. The official versus the maverick. The traditional versus the unorthodox. Legalist versus freedom. So, what's the background to all of this? Well, we actually need to just jump back a couple of verses to chapter 2 and verse 23 to find out. Because Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, this isn't a for one night only um, job. Jesus is actually there for a couple of weeks because the Feast of Unleavened Bread follows on from the Feast of the Passover. And in chapter 2, verse 23, it says this, While he was in Jerusalem, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in in his name. That's great. That's really good. Seeing, believing, preaching, you've got to start somewhere. And that's a really good place to start. But 24, verse 24, rocks up as a bit of a party pooper. Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He didn't entrust himself to them. He didn't commit himself to them. The word um, entrust is actually better translated as believe. Jesus didn't believe in their belief. He didn't have faith in their faith. Look at the difference here between being convinced of something and believing with all their hearts. Difference between intellectual belief and saving belief. The crowd had no problem believing this was a man sent of God, but they couldn't believe he was their saviour. They believed in the miracles, they believed in the excitement, but they didn't believe Jesus could save them. And how do we know this? It's in verse 25, This is the message version. He knew them inside out and knew how untrustworthy they were. He didn't need any help in seeing right through them. Good old J.C. Ryle, the theologian and writer of Preacher, said this, The immense difference between our Lord and all ministers appears strikingly in this verse. Ministers are constantly deceived in their estimation of people. Christ never was and never could be. You might be able to fool Phil. You might fool the Pope. You might fool the Archbishop of Canterbury with a big hat. You might even fool the extremely famous author, speaker, Lisa Holmes. Um, (laughs) But you can never fool God. He alone knows your heart. Clearly, though, this whole miracles, people seeing, people coming to Jesus and watching his divine power was unsettling. Jerusalem was unsettled by this. People were starting to think, starting to wonder what was happening. And so, enter stage left, Nicodemus, friendly waggle. Now, according to Flavius Josephus, a historian from about AD 79, wrote a fascinating 21 volumes on the history of the Jewish nation, always good for a Christmas present. 
There were 6,000 Pharisees at the time, and they were the most devout, most devout, sorry, the most conscientious keepers of the law, not just the law of Scripture, but all the laws they'd made up to go alongside that. The word Pharisee comes from the word separated. They were a separated group, separated by their devotion to the law. And there were a lot of laws. 615 laws to obey, plus 1,500 guidelines and amendments. And it came down to some quite bizarre minutia. So a Pharisee couldn't look in the mirror on the Sabbath, lest he be tempted to pluck a grey hair, and that was work. My favourite one, though, is this. A Pharisee could eat an egg that was laid on the Sabbath, but only if he killed the chicken the next day as punishment for laying the egg on the Sabbath. <laughs> Understandably, the chickens weren't too keen on that one. <laughs> Nicodemus is counted as one of these top guys. He leads by example. He's following all these laws and then teaching people to do the same. He is a teacher. He's been through loads and loads of schools of learning. Um, I have to look at this one. The Bet Hathford, the Bet Talmud, and the Bet Midrash. These are all the different schools where you were taken from a child through to a man who knew your stuff. He's an authorized teacher. He's recognized by the formal school of learning. And in verse 10, Jesus actually says, you are Israel's teacher. Now, apparently, the English translation isn't actually forceful enough on that point. It should be more like, aren't you the schoolmaster of Israel? Aren't you the teacher of Israel? He's not coming along as just a Pharisee. Nicodemus is coming as a member of the elite Pharisees, the very top, an authorized teacher. Some of the commentators say possibly like the head teacher of all the Pharisees. This guy was top dog, and he was the teacher of the Jewish nation. So, why is this fella, Nicodemus, teacher, leader, rocked up to see Jesus? Well, he may be at the absolute pinnacle of Judaism. He might be the teacher of Israel. He may be obeying 615 different laws. He might be massively religious, but I think he was possibly a bit worried a bit fearful, maybe. Doubting. He's got all the gear, but no idea. <laughs> he, um, he knows all the theory, but none of the reality. He's fearful that despite his learning and his obedience of the rule book, it's all for nothing. He's not going to make heaven. So, what does Jesus do with this guy who knows it all, Mr. Clever Clogs? He teaches him. He teaches them a truth that's going to blow his big intellectual mind. But the irony is that actually, according to the strict rules of the time, it's doubtful that Jesus was even recognized as a teacher. He shouldn't have been. He's not completed that formal education. Jesus probably went along to some of the lower schools, but maybe, I don't know, the, the commentators suggest probably not the kind of the latter schools, the, the ones where you gain that authenticity as a teacher. But yet Jesus is known and addressed as teacher by pretty much everyone who meets him. Even Nicodemus calls him teacher. The most commonly used term for addressing Jesus was that one. Take us didaskalos, apparently. 
in my knowledge of amazing, my one Greek word, um, it translates as teacher. But the astonishing thing is that in this day, in those days, an unaccredited teacher probably would be dismissed most of the time, dismissed out of hand, somebody not worth listening to. But with Jesus, it wasn't his learning, it wasn't his academic credentials, it wasn't his social position that amazed everybody, it was what he had to say. That was what amazed people. I think Phil referred to this last week in Matthew, and it says that the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. See, the scribes and rabbis at that time, they weren't actually interested in the people. They were interested in the rules. They were there to teach the Torah, to give their interpretation of it, to give their version of the rule book, and to create yet more religious red tape. But when Jesus rocks up, he flipped that teaching. He flipped that on its head. Jesus couldn't, didn't come to focus on the rules. He came to focus instead on the people. He didn't come to observe religious niceties. Jesus came to break those niceties. Jesus didn't come to place more burdens on people. He came to relieve their burdens. His yoke is light. So here we are, two teachers, different backgrounds, different social status, different educations, but one's got all the questions and the other's got all the answers. How does their meeting go? I have a vision of two armchairs and then sitting head to head in kind of a very little table between them, very intense meeting going on. Because it says in the passage that he came to Jesus at night, said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. You know that thing when you say something to somebody and they reply with something completely different? Well, it's a bit like that here, isn't it? It's windy today, isn't it? No, I wore the blue one. <laughs> Happens to me a lot that, mostly because I've got terrible hearing, so people say things to me, I answer and they look very blankly at me. I do apologise if that is the case. Um, this has just happened to Nicodemus. He's just given this lovely opening address, friendly opening gambit. He stated Jesus is a teacher and... You know, not only that, but one sent from God. That's quite an admission for a Pharisee. And then Jesus replies as if he's not even heard him. But think back to where we were earlier, verse 25. Jesus knows what is in each person's heart. He knew the hearts of the crowds earlier, and he knows Nicodemus's heart. He knows exactly why Nicodemus is there, and he wants to address the issue straight off. Jesus knows that in his current state, Nicodemus is not going to be going to heaven. And that's the bottom line. That's Jesus' bottom line. Don't mess with flattery and religion if you've not got your place booked in the kingdom. And what's Nicodemus' response to Jesus? Does he immediately see the error of his ways? How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Now, I've heard sermons suggest that Nicodemus doesn't get it. He's confused. Jesus has baffled him, and he's replied with an obvious, but yet slightly stupid answer. But let's just consider this. We've established Nicodemus is an elite Pharisee. You know, he's the SAS in the Pharisee world. He's considered the teacher of Israel. He's a very intelligent man. He's like a professor of theology. 
Nicodemus knows exactly what Jesus has just told him. He knows that Jesus just said, you ain't getting into the kingdom of God by anything that you can do any more than you can have anything to do with your own birth. See, the rabbis and scribes of that time spent their, all their time in a world of parables, stories, and their pictures. And he's understood Jesus loud and clear. And this is Nicodemus jumping back in again to a theological discussion in the third person. He comes back at Jesus. You're telling me it's humanly impossible for a person to enter heaven. I've spent all my life trying to do this by good works, and you tell me I can't do it. All Nicodemus has ever heard is, you earn it, you achieve it, it's by religion, rules, and morality. And Jesus is coming along and rapidly disillusioning him. But like all good teachers, Jesus repeats and expands on his point. Answers, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You must not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. So is that all clear then, that little bit, that passage? What's that all about? These few verses have caused quite a lot of contention over the years. An awful lot has been written about them. An awful lot. I've tried to read some of it, not all of it, because frankly I didn't have enough time in my life. Um, but there's a huge amount written, and it's not... It's, yes, it's caused a lot of difficulties with, with like different groups saying, well, it means this, or it means this, or it means this. I am not a theologian. I bash things with hammers, okay? That is what I love to do. So please excuse me if I don't kind of delve into the absolute depth of this and make a pronouncement. If you want to discuss it at length, there's Phil. <laughs> what most people agree on is that actually Jesus is giving a really good lesson here. And like all good teachers, he's not giving the answers away. He's making Nicodemus think about stuff. But what's Nicodemus going to be thinking about? Well, let's consider Nicodemus's world. What's his frame of reference? He's a Pharisee. His frame of reference is the Old Testament. From about this high, he's been learning it, and he's learned huge chunks of it, absolutely loads. He knows the history, the stories, everything about the Old Testament. And so Jesus has given him a couple of Old Testament clues here, and Nicodemus is working them out. Now, as, Nic as Jesus spoke those words, um, I'm sure Nicodemus' mind may as well jump back to Ezekiel 36. I'm guessing yours did too, did it? Yeah? Mine certainly didn't. Um, but Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one enters the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Now, back in Ezekiel, it says this. Would do. There we go. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart to put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people, and I will be your God. The Israelites had offended God. They'd strayed away from him. And um, here we go. But God would not abandon them. God wouldn't just leave them. God acted to save them. But he didn't do it on the basis of their worthiness. He did it 
out of the richness of his mercy. If you look there, there's a, out of interest, there's a couple of you wills at the end, but those you wills are instructions. Look how many I wills there are. I will, I will, I will. God doesn't need us for our restoration. We need him. He determines our regeneration, our new birth, not us. It's not by our works. It's not anything we can do. Jump to Titus. He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. God does because we cannot in verse 6, then, Jesus moves on to explain this further to Nicodemus. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. Where will this take Nicodemus? Well, should we try a bit of Job? What are mortals that they could be pure, or those born of a woman that they could be righteous? What about Psalms? Surely I was sinful at my birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And my favorite one, which I think is licensed to call people names. How then can a mortal be righteous before God? How can one be born of a, 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 whoops, a woman be pure? If the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes, how much less a mortal who is but a maggot, a human being who is only a worm? <laughs> Just in case you're feeling good about yourself. Flesh can only produce flesh, nothing else. And flesh, as we've just seen, is inherently sinful. Only spirit can produce spirit. We need complete spiritual rebirth, and only God's spirit can do that. Mortals cannot produce a spiritual rebirth, and in fact, Jesus reprimands Nicodemus for asking, you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. Nicodemus has asked if he needed to re-enter the womb to be born again, and Jesus tells them even if he could, and I suspect his mother might have had something to say about it, even if he could, he still wouldn't be fit for heaven. Flesh can only produce flesh. Humans can only produce humans, and we are sinners. To bring, unclean from, to bring clean from unclean is impossible. There's no self-curative power in man, no matter how many self-help books you read. A bramble cannot produce grapes, even if you tend it really nicely and do lots of lovely stuff to it, it cannot do it. In order to enter the kingdom of God, a new birth must take place. That of the Spirit, and only the Holy Spirit can do that. Nicodemus needed reminding of this through his Old Testament passages. He needed reminding that salvation is an act of God alone. Now Nicodemus speaks for the third and the last time in this conversation. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. Nicodemus doesn't know what to do with it, I don't think. He's not buying this. He's not believing this just yet. This is turning his world over. It's completely different from everything he's ever heard. This is everything coming crashing down. His foundations are being a bit shaken here. This is not what he was expecting. It's revolutionary. As Phil was saying last week, it's a paradigm shift. The usual the accepted way has changed. Instead, there is a new way, there's a new path to be taken. Nicodemus, though, isn't quite on that path yet. And how do we know this? Well, I'm going to paraphrase verses 10 to 13. You're supposed to be the best teacher in Israel. You study the Old Testament, and yet you know nothing. 
you don't accept our testimony, you don't believe me. You don't believe when I tell you about things of this earth, what's happening here. How are you going to believe me then when I go on to tell you about things in heaven? If you don't understand the ABC of the message, how are you going to understand the deeper, the higher truths? Jesus tells Nicodemus, if you don't get the spiritual one plus one, how are you going to cope with spiritual calculus? I can do that, by the way. <laughs> Nicodemus's reply and thoughts aren't actually recorded. But if he was a bit confused when he arrived, his head must be a little bit scrambled by now. He'd come to find out what final rule he could do, what final religious step he could take to guarantee to gold plate his way into heaven. And he's now sitting there with Jesus, having slightly shattered his delusions. And just when his little brain's probably about to explode, he's hit with another massively controversial statement. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For Nicodemus, this is absolutely shocking. This is devastating. Not only is it salvation by faith alone, but it's for everyone, Jew and Gentile. Those whom the Jews hated. These idolatrous, blasphemous nations have been a thorn in Israel's side. Suddenly, they're all included. No special works can save them. Not being a Jew, not being part of a special separated group, none of this was going to get Nicodemus into heaven. No, the only way was through faith in the Son of Man. I can almost hear Nicodemus sitting there, head in hands, saying, how, why, what is going on? When Jesus answered his question, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. I did try to put some kind of explanation together on that, and then I read the fantastic J.C. Ryle and thought, oh, forget it, I'm just using his, because it's way better than anything I could ever come up with. And J.C. Ryle had this to say, the truth before us is the very foundation stone of the Christian religion. Christ's death is the Christian's life. Christ's cross is the Christian's title to heaven. Christ lifted up and put to shame on Calvary is the ladder by which Christians enter into the holiest and are at land, length landed in glory. It's true we are sinners, but Christ has suffered for us. It's true we deserve death, but Christ has died for us. It's true we are guilty debtors, but Christ has paid his, our debts with his own blood. This is the real gospel. This is the good news. On this let us lean while we live. To this let us cling when we die. Christ has been lifted upon the cross and has thrown open the gates of heaven to all believers. See, Nicodemus had quite a lesson that day. I suspect it probably didn't go quite how he thought it was going to go when he left home to go and see Jesus. I'm pretty certain, though, he was glad it did. Because, in case you were wondering, we do find Nicodemus again a bit later on in chapter 7. When Jesus stands before the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus stands up and defends him. He takes the scorn and derision of his fellows in the Sanhedrin. And later on again still, we see Nicodemus in chapter 19, 
when he goes with Joseph to bury Jesus. What I found really interesting was that it was Nicodemus who took with him 34 kilos of spices to wrap the body in. 34 kilos, that's a really massive but yet really important amount. Because, you see, 34 kilos was the same amount as you would wrap a king. Jesus was now Nicodemus's king. So, what are we going to take away from this today? Well, firstly, despite standing here preaching, what are we listening to? <laughs> Not all teachers and preachers, despite their qualifications, despite their standing, are worth listening to. Jesus used the scriptures to measure Nicodemus' life against and his teaching, and he found it wanting. Whenever we're listening to preachers, teachers, whenever we're reading stuff, we need to use this to measure it against and to decide if it's worth listening to. And if it's not, bin it. Secondly, Jesus... Whoop, steady, there we go. Jesus' teaching is clear and consistent all the way through. Salvation isn't gained by those who try harder. Salvation isn't gained by those who live better, those who are more moral, those who are more religious. Salvation can't be gained by anything a person does. We need not to be drawn into the lie that God has got a pair of celestial scales providing you tip that balance from naughty to nice. That's it, you're in. Helping old ladies across the road, whether they want to go or not, patting small dogs, looking after small children. There's a worldly lie that if you do all these good things, you've tipped the balance, you're in, jobs are good. Pearly gates swing open. We must fight back and not get dragged into that way of thinking. Tragically, I know of churches where the gospel isn't preached on a Sunday morning, but yet the social activities, the nice things, are there's nothing wrong with really socially good stuff. We do tons of it here, but it's not going to get you to heaven. Which leads on to my next point. If, like Nicodemus, you're sitting there this morning or listening online or whatever, and you're not convinced of your place in heaven, don't go out the door if you're not sure. I made that up myself. <laughs> <laughs> the kingdom is open to everyone, but you've got to be born again. If you're not sure, then... Don't go out that door. Talk to somebody, one of us or a lovely person who's doing your coffee at the back. And finally, if we are sure of our whoop, there we go. If we are sure of our salvation, are we living like we're sure of it? Nicodemus risked it all. He stood before his colleagues in the Sanhedrin and was humiliated. Nicodemus went publicly and took Jesus' body and wrapped it in all those spices. You don't buy 34 kilos of spice on the quiet. And if the smell doesn't give you away, all them Schwartz jars will. <laughs> There's no, I can't find a, any kind of further historical record of what happened to Nicodemus. But there is tradition. There is the stories of what happened. And the story is that Nicodemus died in poverty, living on the outskirts of Jerusalem, where he was ostracized for his faith and forced to flee. So Nicodemus was willing to be counted. Are we? He was willing to stand up for what he believed in and to demonstrate that. Are we? Am I willing to stand up to go out on a Saturday on the street and uh, hand out stones and plant pots? 
Israel's schoolmaster became a pupil. The teacher became the taught. And so this teacher, Jesus, do you know him? Do you know him as the best teacher there's ever been? The one who's taught the best lessons, who gave his life for us that we might spend eternity with him. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for its power, its clarity, its encouragement. Thank you, Father, it blesses us. Lord, I just thank you for this wonderful body of people who thank you that by your grace and power you've made us a people who've been given life. And we now have the joy of practicing that truth and measuring ourselves by the word of God and making a stand for you. I pray, Father, for the people in this town who hear the message but haven't yet believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. May they understand and may they run to you, the one who was lifted on the cross to bear their sins and rose for them that they may believe in him as Lord and Savior. Ask this in your holy name. Amen.